All right. You know, while we were away, and we once we watched the services on Facebook, it hit me. I can preach from the balcony. So, I'm wondering if we should be the first uh, progressive independent Baptist church, and I can just pastor from South Padre Island, Texas, <laughs> preach from the balcony. We'll have deacons meetings over Zoom. We'll have counseling over the phone. Um, and I can just sit there and enjoy the waves and everything else. Um, we're not going to do that. Amen. But um, anyhow, <clears throat> if you've considered my pattern over the last, I would say, maybe four and a half uh, years or so, then you know how I've chosen Sunday nights to be a time where I preach more topically. And on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, I have chosen an expository approach, um, just meaning verse by verse. Most of you know by now, but I feel the best method for a church is go, by, go verse by verse through the Word of God. It keeps me from being on hobby horses and those kind of things, soapboxes, things that I just end up preaching because they irritate me. And it keeps us honest with the Word of God. It makes us address things that we might avoid. And so I do prefer that. I've told you that to say that I believe the Lord has led me to take us through the book of Acts on Sunday nights. And how long are we going to be here? I don't know. It's been four and a half years already in John. This is more chapters. My intent is not to drag my feet. I'm trying to get a little better at speeding things up. But I'm just going to do as the Lord leads. Amen. And so it is what it is. Uh, I'm not against topical preaching, just in case there's any preachers in here who now hate me. Um, I'm not against that. We're going to do that on Sunday morning a little bit once we conclude the book of John. We'll do that for a season at least. But um, I do prefer the, the verse by verse. So with that out of the way, I ask you to join me in the book of Acts. <laughs> to the five people that got that, thank you. When I was in basic instructor course, they... Um, were telling us how you had to pronounce words a certain way. And they said, you can't say acts. I want to ask you something. I can't even say it wrong. And this girl said, I I can't. All I can say is acts. And he said, can you say mask? And she said, well, yeah, mask. He said, now just say mask without the M. And she went, ask. And she was like, (gasps) (laughs) all right. We're going to kind of introduce this book. We'll do a little bit from the first verse, but let's read verses 1 through 5, please. The book of Acts, verses 1 through 5. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So we see this book opens with mentioning, um, the penman here mentions, The former treaties have I made. The penman of Acts is Luke. The same man who penned the gospel 
according to Luke, the Lord's Gospel according to Luke. We might just call it Luke's Gospel, but we understand it's the Lord's Gospel ultimately. And therefore, when he writes the former treaties, he's referring to what we call Luke. He's referring back to the Gospel. And I realize that our ultimate prize and glory is going to be to see our Lord. Amen? Amen. I cannot wait for that day, and, and maybe it's going to be the thing to the point where nothing else is going to matter. We're not going to care what takes place after this life or not. But if I do get an opportunity, outside of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to see Luke when I get to heaven. I'd like to ask him some things that right now I just don't know. All the saints would be good to talk about. But I reckon if God wanted us to know more, He'd have given us more information in His Word. And so we'll just have to wait and see what that day holds for us. But for now, what you'll find is there's many theories, there's a lot of speculation out there, opinions regarding Luke the Evangelist, and they try to answer questions like, where was he from? Was he one of the 70? Was he a Gentile? Did he ever physically walk with Jesus? Many other things we could throw in there. I have my opinions on all of those, but I'll not get into none of them. Amen. He's such an enigmatic person to append so much of the New Testament. I believe Brother DeGarmo mentioned once in Sunday school how um, I think one of these is more words than... Anyway, I can't remember exactly what he mentioned, but it got me... It stuck in my head when he mentioned Luke penning so much of the New Testament. I never thought of that. And so as I was preparing for this, it hit me what he had said. And I didn't take time to verify this, Justin, so don't you know, come after me or anything. But I read that although Luke only pens two books, it's over a quarter of the New Testament by words. More than any other author. Now, or any other penman. That's amazing. I didn't verify this, but 27.5%. Amen, there you go. And that's probably not King James, so do with that as you will. And yet, for a man that's penned over a quarter of the New Testament, he's only mentioned three times by name. Twice as Luke in Colossians 4.14 and 2 Timothy 4.11 and once as Lucas in Philemon 1, 24, or verse 24. What we do know about Luke is that he was a physician. In Colossians 4.1, the Apostle Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. Being a physician then, he no doubt had an eye for detail when it came to diagnosing different ailments and things. And this makes sense that he would have such an attention to detail, which would lead to him pinning so much of the New Testament. And it is done so with a lot of detail. Uh, he's very descriptive. He includes details we might expect a physician's eye to catch. He's a very educated man. He's a very, he is an he is a very educated man. See, amen, it's tough even just for English, praise God. And, and listen, I'm told, I don't know this, but I'm told that his Greek is second to none in his writings. And though he was a physician, he also is an excellent historian, which we find with the details that we read in Luke and Acts. Now we know that Luke traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul. We're going to make note of that as we make our way through this book. And we can imagine that since Paul calls him the beloved physician, that along the way in these travels, he didn't just set his physician stuff aside, that he carried that skill with him. And perhaps he may have been the very first medical missionary. Amen. Just something to think about there. We support Becky Pope 
and um, honored to do so as she's out there on the medical mission field. And uh, thank God for people that have that ability. And we know Luke was very loyal to Paul. It's in 2 Timothy 4.11, as Paul's life on this earth is drawing to a close, he knows he's about to be offered up, and he writes, only Luke is with me. Luke remained very faithful to Paul. We don't have an exact date when the book of Acts was written, but it is generally agreed that it was written around 62. The thought is that Luke was with Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome, and during that time, he would have used it to pen this book. But we don't know that for sure. And since the book opens up by mentioning the former treaties which Luke made, the book of Acts is a natural bridge from the Gospels, what Jesus did, to what the apostles did. It's just a natural joining here as we go through the book of Acts. It's a bridge between the ministry of our Lord and the ministry of the apostles. Luke says in verse 1 that his former treatise was of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And in verse 2 that it spanned until the day in which he was taken up. And so Luke says the former treatise, the first book I wrote to you, I did so of all that Jesus did until he was ascended. And so the book of Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke. It picks right back up where it left off. It picks right back up just before the ascension. And it's going to chronicle the spread of the gospel westward throughout the Roman Empire. This is a transition book between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Jesus came to establish the New Covenant, which He did upon the cross in giving His blood. Amen. And from the book of Acts forward, we see the church's role under the new covenant. And the reason I felt led to do this study is because we will see in this book what it looks like to be a living church. I hate dead church. This is a church alive. This is what it looks like. This is a church in action. Acts. That we'll see as we go through this. And while my emphasis is always upon Liberty Baptist Tabernacle... I don't need to try to pastor Brothers Church here in Brooklyn. Uh, I don't need to try to pastor somebody. My focus is always here. But you will easily notice as we go through this book how that in America, the church landscape is transitioning into a very dangerous position. You'll see how far churches on the whole have departed from the first century church that we have recorded here in the book of Acts. And I'm sure we're going to be challenged as well as a church body because we haven't arrived either. Amen. And so this is going to help us along. To be clear, I'm not against books that are written by other pastors on the church. I have those on my bookshelf by some men who have experienced the blessing of God. And I draw from those. But if you were to ask me tonight, what kind of a church do you want Liberty Baptist Tabernacle to be like? It's not the church in another city, but it is the church in the book of Acts. That's what I would like for us to be. A church in action, a church in motion, a church that is doing what God has called us to do. I want to be that kind of church. Empowered by the Holy Ghost. And for that to happen, the members have to be full of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have to as individuals. And once we are Holy Ghost filled, we will be a church fulfilling the great commission of preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God to all we possibly can. It's entitled the book of the Acts of the Apostles. 
And when we are a Holy Ghost-filled people, we will naturally find ourselves doing, investing ourselves into what the Father has called us to do. Because if we're walking in the Spirit, we're going to naturally be doing what it is the, God the Father wants us to do. And so we've got to be Spirit-filled. Vance Havner said, What terrible times we have in our churches trying to keep people faithful in attendance and loyalty. How we coax and tantalize church members into doing things they don't want to do, which they would do if they loved God. Did you hear what he said? And listen, that was probably back in the 70s or 80s. How we coax and tantalize church members into doing things they don't want to do, which they would do if they loved God. For this church to be what God wants us to be, then we must be like this early church and be Spirit-filled believers, as we will see in the opening chapters in future messages. Once we are Holy Ghost-empowered and controlled, we won't have problems getting people to attend Saturation Saturday. Just got real up in here. Amen. Listen, once we are Holy Ghost filled, I won't have to beg and plead people to be back on Wednesday night for prayer. Once we are Holy Ghost filled, you will be in the Word of God. You will pray. And you will give. Financially. <laughs> Just in case there's any ambiguity. In case, I, in case I didn't make it clear. Amen. Now, listen, we have, to, we have to consider the environment that these churches found themselves in in the book of Acts. Think about what they were living in. These Christians, they were not living in a republic like we are. Brother DeGarmo mentioned that this morning as well. We, we gathered here in freedom today. Amen. Nobody was checking to make sure what we're doing, no oversight. We, we live in, a, in an environment still that is very free. But I want you to understand, as we go through this book, these Christians were under a very oppressive regime. It's important you understand this. Their economic position, most of these early Christians were slaves. Living day by day, literally. It wasn't any of this, well, I'll go to the store next uh, in a couple days, we got plenty. Listen, they were living day by day. They were slaves, they didn't have much. And the morality of the Roman Empire was so gross, so wicked, that we can't even talk about it in here tonight. That's the environment that these people were living in. And yet, get this now, the gospel before the turn of the first century has spread westward as far as Britain, eastward into China, southward into Africa. You hear what I'm saying? It wasn't about the government. It wasn't about, boy, if we could just get Nero out of power, man, we Christians, we could do something with the gospel. There wasn't any of that. It was, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our home. Jesus didn't even bring a revolution. We're just going to preach the gospel. Listen, they had governmental problems. Far worse than we have ever experienced. 
But so often we act as though our corrupt government is what is hindering us from being successful in getting the gospel out. It isn't a weak government that hinders the gospel uh, progression, but it is weak churches that hinders the gospel's progression in this world in our day. If we're going to impact the lives of sinners, we don't look to the government. Amen. We just need, listen, we just need to settle it now that our governmental protections are coming to an end. We just better come to terms with this because it's already happening. We are now living in a neo-pagan, post-truth culture. If you don't believe that, then how in the world you can look at your secrets and say, I'm the opposite. We are post-truth. Come on now. Listen, if we can say, I know I was born with male parts, but I'm really a female, we are post-truth society. And we just need to call it what it is, label it what it is, and deal with it. The early church was not about trusting their government, but it was all about proclaiming Christ. And the theme that you're going to find throughout the book of Acts, and I challenge you to do this as you read through it, you underline every time it mentions they preach Christ. They preach Christ. And that's what you'll find here in the book of Acts. And I believe what God is doing in our day is He is beginning to awaken the true churches in America to show them what New Testament Christianity is supposed to be. That we are not to be caught up in all of these different rallies and different things and social justice and all this. Listen, we are here for the propagation of the gospel. That's what fixes a country. We just have to stay faithful. Now we see in verse 1 in the book here of Acts, it's written to a man named Theophilus. His name means a friend of God. How cool is that? I don't know what mine means, but I doubt it's that. Luke was also written to Theophilus. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4 says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now we know nothing about Theophilus, except that Luke addresses him as most excellent. And as Luke pens the book of Acts, that is a term used in Acts to describe those in positions of authority. Felix and Festus were both governors and they are dressed as most excellent or most noble. Same Greek words. So apparently Theophilus was one in a position of authority. Some suppose that when the book of Acts was penned, he was no longer in that position because most excellent is removed. I don't know. Whatever position he may have had, I want you to get this now. I find it absolutely remarkable that over a quarter of our New Testament is written to reach one man. Isn't that amazing? He writes Luke to Theophilus and Acts to Theophilus with the intent of seeing one man grounded in the faith. In Luke 1.4, he wrote that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And the book of Acts is going to pick up right where Luke left off. 
No doubt, this was a great deal of effort in pinning these two accounts, right? They didn't have Word. They didn't have a computer. They didn't have recording devices. This was a laborious task to pin this down. And no doubt it was a great deal of effort. And to think that Luke did all of this in hopes of seeing one man become grounded in the faith is such an example for us to consider today. Mike Chavez recently concluded teaching our discipleship class on Wednesday nights. And I sure meant to make a big deal of that, and I'm sorry that I forgot. Things happen so fast around here, i got to get with the program. Um, I want to thank him for doing so, and I want to thank those who took the class uh, for taking it. But that course lasted several months, and all the effort was put forth. We are putting forth the effort to disciple. And I want to tell you, we may grow tired along the way, but we have to keep putting forth the effort to see others rooted and grounded so that they may be like a tree planted by the rivers whose leaf never withers and that they'll bring forth fruit in their season. And I realize I may not word this correctly, so I hope what I'm about to say is going to make sense, but the more I consider and study this topic in the Bible, the more I am convinced that the mark of, the great, of a great church is the act of discipling those who have been saved. Stay with me now. Salvation is the easy part. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. We just need to be faithful to present the gospel to the lost. But it's what we do after salvation that's going to make the biggest impact upon this earth. If you've been in church long enough, you know there's been plenty of people coming here, make a profession of faith, and they're gone. No real impact. And I believe we've dropped the ball in this area of discipleship in the last century. At one time, the mega churches in America were the independent Baptist churches. Where are they now? We did a wonderful job evangelizing all kinds of outreach but evidently did a terrible job in discipleship. There was such an emphasis on winning souls that discipleship inadvertently took a back seat. Listen, soul winning and discipleship should never be separated from the two. From the testimony of some pastors who were faithful teenagers in the 70s, they confess now that they were seeing a great deal of soul winning, wonderful outreach, but there was a lack of quality discipleship. Now, obviously, we're not against soul winning. Amen. Don't misunderstand me, but I have been in churches. I've seen it with my own eyes. I have been in churches where when they go out to preach the gospel to the lost and they quote-unquote lead someone to Christ, they put the name of the individual in the flyleaf of their Bible as some kind of a commendation medal, but almost none of them are, were ever discipled. Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember at first being impressed with how many were supposedly being saved. But I soon came to realize something was off. Where were the baptisms? Where was the Sunday attendance? Why were they not being discipled? Can I just get ahead of myself here just a second and remind you that the Great Commission is to go forth teaching and preaching, baptizing, all that Jesus commanded? Where, where is that in the modern day Baptist soul winning effort? I tell you, in a lot of our churches now, all we do is we go to a door and knock on it and we try to sell them a ticket to get out of hell. 
Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that he didn't need to commend himself because they were his epistle, written in his heart, known and read of all men. If I can put it this way, the, uh, the apostle Paul did not need to record names of those he led in a prayer in a scroll somewhere. But the fact that there was a church in Corinth made up of faithful believers, faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, proved his labors. In other words, it wasn't the number of professions of faith that mattered, but it was how many were being faithful. Listen, I've been in them, I'm telling you. Every Sunday, the pastor has every guy from different ministries come up here and, all right, tell us how many you led to the Lord this week. I led 33, I led 15, I led 2, and I led... Y'all doing this every week? Y'all should be running about 12,000 by now. Listen, I understand there's some that are going to get saved and they're, they're not going to be disciples. I understand that. But what happened? You know, it's interesting. You'll never find in the Bible where someone leads another through a prayer of salvation. Are we getting real in here or is it just hot? But that's often what we've been taught to do. I stopped leading people through prayers years ago. I said, you want to be saved? Yeah, I sure do. Then why don't you get on your face before God right now and cry out to Him for salvation? And you know what? They do. Amen. I take that back. There was one man. Um, he was mentally retarded in my office, and I could tell he was genuine about what he was talking about, and I did help him along. That's been the only one, though. But what do we find in the Bible? We find this. Repent and believe. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. You see, all that's required for salvation is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is everybody okay tonight? Okay, I, you know, sometimes I think I stumbled into the wrong church or something. I, um, listen, I knew I was saved before I, I ever walked down the aisle to say the prayer the guy had for me. Hey, man. Well... If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, believe in thine heart that God hath raised Jesus from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You just call upon the Lord in simple faith, believing. You see, God brings the harvest as we are faithful to broadcast the seed. But what we do with that soul, after there's a profession of faith, will determine the growth of that individual spiritually. It's almost as if we've gotten in the habit of taking people out on the lake making their profession of faith and then tossing them overboard and saying, figure out how to swim. And a lot of them panic. And when you panic and you've never been able to swim before, you're likely to tire yourself out and drown. Amen? Because there's got to be a little bit of a relaxation part of that swimming. I know we're good independent Baptists, none of y'all swim. But <laughs> to those of us that do, Breck, we understand this. Amen? <laughs> Sometimes being Baptist just cramps my style. Amen? <laughs> What did Brother Herring say when he was here? We're not against them yet, but we'll find a reason why we are, whatever it was. Yeah. Give us time and we'll find a reason why we hate Cabbage Patch Dolls. Amen. Um, yeah. But where am I at? I'm totally off the rails here. Anyway, listen, this is why God has gifted the church with those who can help believers to grow. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, 
Why? That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Seeing people saved takes work in the sense that we must be faithful to proclaim the message. But it is not our work to save them. However, discipleship is our work. We are the one charged to teach them. And this is part of the reason why the church exists upon the earth. But as a result of weak discipleship, the churches in America have drastically departed from the churches that we find here in Acts. And now, for the first time in American history, church membership is now below 50%. Do you hear what I said? Forbes published an article on March 29th, 2021, entitled, American Church Membership Drops Below 50% for the First Time. And in part, it reads this, quote, U.S. church membership has fallen below 50% for the first time, according to a Gallup poll published Monday, continuing a decades-long decline in membership driven by a growing number of Americans who express no religious affiliation. And then it gives you some key facts, as they call it. U.S. church membership hovered around 70% for 60 years, since Gallup first started measuring it in 1937. So 1937 till about 1997, it hovered around 70%. It says, though the figure has been in steady decline since the turn of the century. The trend coincides with growing number of Americans who don't express a religious preference, which has grown from 8% in 1998 to 21% in the last three years as well as a drop in the number of religious Americans formerly belonging to a church, which has fallen 13 points over the last 20 years to 60%. Gallup's research links declining membership with age. With, 60, with 66% of the people born before 1946 belonging to a church, compared to 58% of baby boomers and 50% of Gen Xers. Just 36% of millennials told Gallup they belonged to a church and a similar number to the adults of Generation Z interviewed, though the pollsters acknowledge data from this group is limited. You see, there's never been a problem getting people into making a profession of faith. We could take VBS coming up at the end of July and I could scare every one of them into not wanting to go to hell. I can make them make a profession of faith is what I'm saying. That's not the problem. We can do that. And churches can get you to make a profession of faith to some degree. The rise of megachurches proves that it's not difficult to draw crowds. But with a lack of discipleship came a lack of faithfulness to the house of God. And now we're seeing the fruits of this. And the truth is, a lack of biblical discipleship has led to a complete disregard of the Bible altogether in this generation that's coming up. In fact, a so-called progressive church, that's how they identify themselves, known as Grace Point Church, led by Pastor Josh Scott, located in Nashville, Tennessee, just said in February, quote, 
the Bible isn't the Word of God. That it is not inerrant or infallible. He said, quote, as progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. We know that it, can, it can't live up to the impossible modern standards. We strive to more clearly articulate what Scripture is and isn't. That's a church. They call themselves a church. Listen, this is what we should expect to happen to a group of people who grew up under those who didn't take church seriously. We have had a generation of weak Christianity where church was, if it ain't raining, we'll be there maybe. And we wonder why now that those kids that are coming up are saying, I don't even believe this is God's Word. What did we expect? Why be faithful to a book you were never told you needed to be grounded in in the first place? Now we understand there must be a desire within the heart of the one who makes the profession of faith to be discipled. Would you agree with that? Listen, we want to meet them where they're at, but they need to meet us where we're at too. There has to be that desire to want to grow. There has to be a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Discipleship is always a two-way street. So we must not only emphasize the need for salvation, but we must emphasize the need for being a strong Christian who is sold out for Christ. And so we see this great effort on Luke's behalf to see this one man rooted and grounded in Christ. And don't miss this. This was one-on-one discipleship. You catching that? Luke is personally invested in Theophilus. He is taking of his time to write this man over 25% of what will become the New Testament. This one person. He's going one-on-one. I want to ask you tonight, are you personally invested in somebody else? Are you? Are you actively working to see another believer grounded in Christ? The first demonstration we see of the church being alive in the book of Acts is in the introduction to this book with one man trying to disciple another man along in his faith. And we have to be active in trying to disciple others. Listen, I'm all for going out. I'm all for door knocking. I'm all for reaching the lost. I'm all for all those things. Saturate, saturate, saturate. Let's get the word out. But if we get them in, We've got to work at it. But but hear me well. How many times? Maybe you've been guilty of this. I have way back in the past. How many times have you said, if I can just get them to church, I can talk to my pastor. Boy, if I can just get them to church. No, no, no. Listen, God's called you to invest your life in others. And you need to grow to the point where you can say, come to me with any questions you have. Let me write for you all that I know. That's what Luke is doing. He said, look, over there in Luke, he said, man, everybody's trying to set out to write what they, what they knew. And I, I'm going I'm to do my part now. I'm going to write what I know. 
I'm going to write what's been given to me. And listen, we have to be this active in discipling people. Parents, this means that you have to take the time to diligently teach your children the Word of God. Listen, dads, that falls primarily on you. Listen to what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6-7. Talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. The Bible says you better take every opportunity you have to give the Word of God to your children. When they lie down, when they rise up, when you walk together, when you're in the way, you better give them the Word of God. I remember holding my children in my arms and coming home at night here from church, looking up at our property and saying, you see that moon? It was God Almighty who put that there. Listen, you better take the time because before you know it, they're 18. And you wonder, where in the world did time go? How do I still look this good and they're this old? I don't know. It's gone. It's gone. You can't get it back. You better take the time to instruct them. Do you hear me, parents? And then as we make contact with others in our daily lives, we need to be busy discipling. When we come in here, we need to be busy discipling others. Sunday school teachers, listen, you better take that opportunity to teach the Word of God. Bring someone under your wing when you come in here and teach another who can in turn teach others also. We're not some arena to find a date. We're not in here to have pals. We're not in here to talk football and baseball and basketball and hockey and all the rest, even though I love it all. We are here for the cause of Christ. Pour yourself into those who are fillable. Somebody's not fillable, move on to somebody who is. It's essentially what Paul said when he said, you find somebody that's going to be able to teach others also. Because you'll get frustrated and want to bang your head against the wall when you keep pouring yourself into somebody just turns around and walks out. You find somebody that's fillable and you pour yourself into them. Are you busy training others? Let's not forget that while the Great Commission does say to go and preach, it also says to teach all nations. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Invest yourself in others. I don't know if God's put somebody on your heart. Maybe there's a Theophilus in your life. And God wants you to reach them. And you say, boy, it's going to take a lot of effort. I know. Take the effort. Paul said this to those that he reached. You follow me as I follow Christ. May that be able to be said of all of us we should be able to see a new convert and say, follow me and you'll be on the right path. Maybe God's laid someone on your heart tonight. Would you pray with me?